Welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're talking about the original Nightmare Alley. Yes. In our last podcast we talked about the remake. Well, I say remake, new adaptation of the original source material. Yes. Which was a novel from 1946, as we mentioned, yes. uh, by William Lindsay Gresham. This was the original adaptation of it in 1947, mm. the year after the novel came out, directed by Edmund Goulding, uh, who is a British screenwriter and director, uh, who's best known for uh, Grand Hotel, The Razor's yes. Edge. yes. Dark Victory, uh, The Great Lyle, you know, he, he directed some of Betty Davis's greatest hits as well. Yeah, he directed uh, a number of hits. This is not one of them. This was a box office flop. Yes. And I do think you can see why. And it's funny, I came out of the 2021 Nightmare Alley feeling a little sort of nonplussed by a little, oh, I wasn't that impressed. I love And it. this makes me appreciate things about it that I didn't. I, I think Del Toro's version is the better version. Yes, it is. I agree uh, with that completely. So This, I think, is, is very middle of the road. It's interesting that it's talked of as a noir, and I kind of didn't think it was. Oh, I did. I mean, it wasn't as visually beautiful or interesting as I associate with 40s noir, and I was watching it with Celia, who was in Canada. We pressed play at the same time. And she was, and she's much more familiar with film of this era than I am. And she was saying, this is a melodrama, really. No, it is a noir. I mean, noir is not just about street lamps and kind of shadows, though this has quite a fair share of all of that. Actually. It's not the only thing I associate with it, but... You know, but it is about kind of the descent and, you know, it's, it's about kind of the darker side of life of blackmail and... You know, kind of, uh, I mean, Teron Power is sleeping with Xena, you know, f- yeah, for purposes other than what he feels. And it's he's on the make and whatever. And it ends up like, you know, with like him being turned into a geek. I mean, it's about it's 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 about dark elements of the human. It certainly psyche. is. But I think it's interesting, the difference in mood between this and Del Toro's version. And um, one of the things I felt was completely missing here was a sense of mood. Um Maybe some of that is being accustomed to, to a different era of film style. This is 80 years ago now, close to. But I do think it's, it's really devoid of mood. About eight and a half minutes into this, we're already learning about... Um, I think we're already seeing at that point uh, Tyrone Power getting involved with the magic acts and that. Mm-hmm. And that's some 20, 25 minutes at least in Del Toro's version. There's, like, it, in other words, this goes plot, plot, plot very, very quickly. Mm. Really gets it out. Whereas the new version spends a lot more time establishing mood and tone, which I hadn't given it credit for mm. until I saw how quickly and I think uninspiringly you can do it here. I mean, I think to say it's uninspiring, let's not be too rough on it because I think <laughs> actually it's quite a wonderful film. Sure. It's just, you know, that, I mean, to me, Del Toro is, is much greater. Hmm. Uh, you know, but this has like, you know, quite incredible things. And actually, some things are better in this version. I think Joan Blondell is. You know, so much better than um, Rooney Mara, is it? No, no, no sorry, um, uh, Tony Collette. Tony Collette, yeah, she brings a sensuality and a knowingness and a kind of an acceptance of her own kind of character, yeah, mm-hmm. and a kindness and you know, but but also I don't know, like a, a, a ripe sex sensuality. Yeah, well, she has a seductiveness to her. So. Yeah, which Tony Collette, you know, uh, uh, doesn't bring that. Um, and I think there are wonderful things about, there are wonderful images. I mean, you know, the image with, uh, you know, the character with the electricity is fantastic. There, there actually are quite a lot of archetypal film noir shots. So, you know, uh, uh, 
there's this conversation between Joan Blondell and uh, Theron Power, and he's his face is cast in in shadows where she's in the light, right? And it's almost like a visual representation of like the character, really, mm-hmm. uh, you know, through lighting, you know. So so I liked all of that uh, very very much. Uh, it's just visually, it's not a patch on Del Toro's film. No, no, no. Uh, and I think some of the things that I initially was was rather thrilled by, you know, because what happened with me is that I saw the first half hour of the original Nightmare Alley, and then I just couldn't find time to see it properly before we saw the Del Toro version. And originally, I thought the opening of um, the Goulding version was so much better because actually it begins with Xena, right? And then you're seeing Stan through Xena's eyes, right? Mm-hmm. And so on. But then when I watched the film as a whole, I thought it's right the way that Del Toro begins with Stan's past and his actions and how he ends up, mm. you know, in, in the fairground and so on. It's not right that it begins with Xena because kind of Xena gets dropped out of the story, except as a kind of. Um, well, not even, because actually what Xena stands for, which is a kind of a human frailty, but also a kindness, a yeah, goodness, mm. right? At the end of the film is theoretically taken over by the wife, except, you know, the wife doesn't convey the same things quite, right? Mm. So Xena disappears from the story. So i.e. introducing her and introducing Stan through her eyes is is not followed through as a as a device in the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think you know Del Toro's focus on Stan at the beginning, yeah, where he's committing a murder, yeah, uh, or or getting rid of a body. We're not quite clear, yeah, covering up something really awful, and then that laugh at the end where he accepts his fate is so much better. Yeah, and the ending I think is one of the reasons that. It's one of the reasons I said in the previous podcast, it's one of the things I was talking about as noir, is is the unhappy ending, mm. the, the idea of not getting away with it. And that film ends with him not having got away with it and getting what he deserved, and he's mm. the geek now. And this film doesn't end with that. There's a mm. little bit after it where he is now working as the geek. And, he, and it, just as in the 2021 version, he knows his fate, he understands it completely. Mm. He understands what's happening to him. Um, but he's working at the carnival where... Uh, his wife has gone back to. Mm. Uh, and this, she's played by Colleen Gray, and you see the beginning of an effort to rescue him. She says, mm. "I'm going to help you," mm. and then some of the other, you know, the strong men and other people who knew him said, "I didn't even recognise him." Mm. And the film ends on them saying, "Well, God, we deserved, I think, mm. roughly speaking." I can't remember what they said actually, but it, it does end on a note of there's a potential redemption. Mm. So, and one of the things that I said was so remarkable about the new version is the severity of of the ending, the severity yes. of what happens to, you know, a big, famous, handsome movie star, mm. right? You don't often see that level of, I don't know what the word is, degradation or, mm. you know, something like that. And here, you know, Tyrone Power was a big, famous movie star. Um, or he'd not been, he'd been away at war, right? So this was one of his first films back after the war. Well, but he'd, he'd already had... done The Razor's Edge, which had been a huge success. Yeah. And actually, I think it was on the basis of the success of The Razor's Edge that they got Zanuck to make something so dark for 20th Century Fox. Torian Power was the one who wanted this. Yeah, role. and it's the same director, you know, and uh, the same star. So I think that was a, a reason to gamble on such dark material. Mm. So yeah, he's absolutely a big star. And he does get that ending 
and then it's sort of taken away. There's a little bit of redemption involved, which again, like I said, is something that I would not quite associate with Noir, the idea that maybe there's a way out. Mm. Um, even though he has got this punishment, a way out is offered to him right at the end, mm. potential for a little bit of hope. Um, one of the things I thought was interesting was in the previous podcast, I said that I hadn't seen it coming that he would become the geek. Mm. And you said, of course, you know, mm. basically. You know, of course it's signalled throughout, right? yes. Um, and watching this, I think, made me realise again why I think I didn't spot that in Del Toro's version. It's partly that Del Toro's vision of the geek is so Del Toro. It's a monster. It's from another world. It's like it's from another dimension, that thing. And, and you know, you, it is a man, clearly. I, I, but yeah, I think you, you, you... I didn't see it that way. Well, it, that's how I think it comes across. How it's how, that's how it feels. You know, it's this thing that's kept in the corner. It comes out, it bites the head of a chicken. You don't really see its face. Or I say it... it his face, mm. or anything, you know, and these people are crowded around looking at it. You don't see the geek at all in this at the start, you know, when the equivalent scene is shown. You don't see it, you just see the people looking down into the pit mm. of it. And then almost immediately, Tyrone Power speaks to the head carney, um, saying, how do, you, how do you get a man to do that? How do you make a man do that? How do you turn a man into that? Which immediately kind of signals there is a process involved. This was a person. Mm. Like in, in Del Toro's version, even though it's subtle and it's not really, it is still clearly a person... It's, I think it's presented more as a different thing altogether. No, I don't Monstrous. agree with that. I don't agree with that at all. Uh, I mean, there's a conversation with the foe about how you turn someone into a geek. Yeah, eventually. That's after a little while, and that's when I started to think... Oh, well, that's when, when it got to the end of the film, I thought back and gone, oh, that's what I should have picked up on. Yeah, and, but and that then, is a long time into the film. We spent, mm. we spent, It is a long time. We spent a lot of time by that point. We've seen the introduction to the geek as this otherworldly thing. And we've also spent a lot of time seeing the geek in the backstage, in this cage, just like ranting and raving and being fed shit and like being treated as an animal. So, I mean, I'm not saying I shouldn't have picked up on it, but I think that it's more reasonable to not have picked up on it in the new version because I think it is more subtly spread out the story of the geek. Well, um, I mean, I think it's clearly signaled. It's signaled differently at different moments. You know, obviously... Kind of, you don't want to give away your full hand. There has to be, you know, a process of, mm. you know, the protagonist becoming that. But I think Del Toro's even more classical. You know, the dialogue is repeated at the end to connect to the beginning. You know, there's the thing with the cop coming, you know, to close the show, right? And it's about, uh, uh, it's about the geek, but it's about the in- inhuman treatment of, yes. you know, uh, people. So I think it's signaled, like you know, yeah. fairly regularly, while still kind of obviously not giving the full hand away because you're telling the story and that aspect comes later. Mm. But, you know... I'm just forgiving myself, that's all. I'm all forgiving right, well, myself. You're, you're, and can, I think you're it forgiven. Is, and it's, <laughs> but I do think it's, it's something I appreciated more, you know, on reflection, having seen this version. I think that basically everything, pretty much everything I felt was kind of less expertly handled in this version and it was kind of an object lesson in the difference is... The differences you can result in in adapting material. Yes. Mm. I mean, the things that I think are better in the 1947 version Mm -hmm. is Joan Blondell. Yeah, I just think she's marvellous. And she brings kind of like a humanity and a three-dimensionality and kind of layers. So she's clearly like someone very promiscuous, but also kind of looking after this man she loves and who loves her, right? Uh, And still kind of cheating on him and... Yeah, there's, you know, mm-hmm. there's kind of so many things that she brings to it. The Tony Collette, much as I love her, she, she, 
to me she just doesn't exude sexuality she's all like thin and so so Joan Blondell is better uh, the other thing that I loved very much is the whole element of televangelism and I think that is where uh, del Toro missed a, a shot mm -hmm. right because you know the 1947 film is also so clearly you know, a commentary on televangelism as a con and, a, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, as a mind game that kind of cons people and so on. And actually, unless my memory is so faulty, that that whole aspect is completely missing from the Del Toro version. And yet it's as pertinent as ever. Right. Mm -hmm. Kind of, you know, all those charismatic churches and people raking in millions from, you know, kind of exploiting people suffering on TV and the media and radio. Yes. And I need this private jet because God, I need it for God. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, and there's no reason. I mean, that would have been easy to build in. You just would have needed a few lines of dialogue. So I don't know why mm. uh, Del Toro excluded that because it definitely adds a layer to, you know, to, to the story. Um, so, I mean, those are the things that, uh, that I prefer. But I think, you know, but I think um, Del Toro's is by far the richer film. It's richer visually. I think it's, it's richer narratively. It brings in kind of, you know, so many other layers. It does work, I think, on a kind of a, a pulpier comic book vein, but nonetheless in a symbolic dimension, right? Where those images, which are kind of images from the culture, from comic books, from pulp, from films, yeah, nonetheless kind of resonate in very interesting ways, yeah? Mm -hmm. It's not meant to be realistic in the way that maybe, you know, the 1947 version is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... I think, you know, if you see, you know, the femme fatale, you know, uh, in Del Toro's version, it is like, you know, mm. the femme fatale of pulp covers. Right? Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. And that, and her whole part in the story is handled much, much better in the new version, where here it's, it's very thin. I mean, mm. we even said her character is quite thin in the new version, but her, her part in the film is thin in the 47 one. Yeah, it's even worse, I think. Yeah. Um, um, what, I, what I noticed was interesting was that the recording in the 47 version is done on vinyl, you know, mm. and in uh, the Toro's version is done on tape. Yeah. Yeah, that's all. I just, you know, mm. love the geeky gadgetry of it, right? <laughs> because, but uh, yeah, the character's not a patch. Uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose it's, it wouldn't have been tape, would it? You know, if it would have been taped, then it would have been in the version that came out when the book came out. Exactly. Um, it is an, an anachronism, probably, but um, but you feel like, yeah, vinyl, I don't know, maybe for Delta or a vinyl wouldn't play as well, although I'm sure it could have made it work. I don't know. Mm. Interesting. Anyway, the recording on the vinyl was like, uh, you know, just an interesting observation, I thought. Mm. Um, I did like that whole kind of cabinet in her office in the new version, it had that feeling of like a cabinet of secrets. Yeah, you know, yes. everything matters about getting into that cabinet. Yes. Yeah. I also, what I appreciated in the um, Del Toro version is a kind of a carnality, right? So it's interesting because in the 47 version, John Blondell has it and exudes it, right? Um, but really the person who should have it is Stan, yeah, mm. uh, you know, there's got to be something about his his handsomeness and, you know, actually it's very interesting because I was reading this book of memoirs, you know, by Ava Gardner, right, and she talks about like pussy power, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> kind of, 
these, these women, you know, who have like pussy power because like men are so attracted to them. That, yeah, kind mm. of. Uh, and you know, kind of Stan is someone who has to have like cock power, whatever, right? Like, and it's interesting because Del Toro shows it to you, yeah. And and actually, it comes from the way that Del Toro films uh, uh, Bradley Cooper, yeah. In that scene uh, where he goes to Tony Collette and he goes to have the bath and she mm. looks at him. <clears throat> Yeah, and the way the camera moves, and the way the kind of the um, the angle at which his body and his face are filmed, like mm. he's made to seem like big and sexy. Yeah, and actually, it's the only I think it's the only moment in the film, yeah, that that he's filmed that way. But it's important to establish that he's got that power over women. Mm. Yeah, that mm. that he turns women on. Yeah, and and you know that he knows it, right? Yeah. Uh, so I even think, though he pretends not to know it. You know, in that scene, he he he's resistant, or at least he initially appears to be pretending, at least to be resistant to her come on, even though it's such a clear come on. Mm. Um, but he's kind of maybe it's because he's in someone else's house. You know, she's married. Oh, maybe, maybe <laughs> he just doesn't find her that attractive. It could see. be that, but um, uh. it, he seems to be resistant at least, as, as opposed to like a true Lothario. Yeah. But he also, I think, is hiding that he knows how yes. good-looking he is. A Lothario is different because it's not just about kind of conning women into having as much sex with you as possible. This is just about using the sexual power that you have to whatever advantage you... Mm. Yeah? Whereas the Theron power is clearly described as handsome, you know, and he is introduced to Joan Blondell's gaze, so, you know, kind of she's interested in him. Yeah, but there's a difference between kind of being shown as handsome or a pretty person or, mm-hmm. yeah, than to have a kind of a sexual potency. And I think Bradley Cooper exudes it, at least in that, in, you know, or Guillermo del Toro films the Bradley Stan as having it. Yeah. Uh, whereas it's it's not, um, I, I, I don't think it's quite there in the 1947 version, though, mm. you know, people constantly refer to how good looking Theron Power is, right? So he can be mm. a star and, yeah, and cabaret and whatever. But it's not the same. Mm. Mm. Yeah. He's also, I think, not as good a performer, not good, an, not as good an actor as Bradley Cooper is. Actually, I think I underestimated. When I kind of first saw Bradley Cooper, uh, I think it was in the Hangover films. And I really underestimated him because I thought, oh, the character, <laughs> the character that he plays in those films, or at least the first one, is um, he's like the leader of the gang, and he's surrounded by all these dipshits who are making mistakes and stuff, and they're all looking for their this dude. Where's my friend? Is mm. what that film is. Um, but he's the one, as I recall, who's always like, right, let's go here, let's do this. You know, he's like, I'm in charge, he's, and so he's, I'm in charge, and I'm really pretty. And I just thought, oh, fuck you, I hate this guy so much <laughs> I really did um, and so it meant that for a while I kind of you know as I saw him in other roles I didn't give him the credit that he actually deserved for being really really good he's wonderful I think Teron Power is wonderful and actually I think that last shot at the end not the last shot with uh, the Colin Gray character the last shot where he accepts being a geek mm. and all of a sudden you see like his face aged you know and his eyes drawn and he's really filmed as an old young yeah, guy you know I thought that he was fantastic actually I, I think it was very good I did think in both of those shots actually in the new and the old version how um, 
making someone into a hobo, you know, making these guys into hobos and people who are really super desperate that they'll become a geek, they still can't not make them handsome. And it's not like I think they were trying. I think they were going like, we'll put signifiers of hobo-ness on them. You know, sweat, ruffled hair, a beard on Bradley Cooper. Yes. But we're not going to hide... From, you know, we're going to make them super ugly, right? These are no. still our movie stars. Yes, well, of course, of course, of course. That's a given. Yeah. But I, I, I did think... Um, I did think Trumpa was very good. I, I think Trumpa, or you know, was as good as Bradley Cooper. Though I think Bradley Cooper was given other layers to play. Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, I mean that last shot. You know, I wish Trumpa had been given the opportunity to do that. Right. Mm. Um, it's a it's more complex film than it yeah. Was. It is. I think so. It takes its story more seriously, and 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 I had a, I had a certain problem with that, in that I found it quite self serious, and I wish there had been more fun to it. But I can also see the benefit of of really reaching into it as 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 deep kind of soul despairing noir. Mm. You know? uh, I mean, I think the effect of seeing Nightmare Alley again today was that it, it really made me want to watch Del Toro's version again. Mm. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, I can say that. But uh, but definitely, my first impulse is that Del Toro's version is. Uh, you know, superior in, in almost every way. As I told you, I mean, we disagreed yesterday, but I did think those opening shots, mm. you know, with, you know, the, the the carnival and the tent coming down and, you know, the way the grounds looked, I thought they were, like, thrilling. Yeah. Well, it's made me appreciate all that scene setting more mm. because, like I say, this one just gets into plot, plot, plot right away and it's a bit basic and not as good. It made me appreciate the time that was given over yeah. to that in Del Toro's version. And the style and the mood with which it's done. Mm. I mean, I think it's, it's not just that more time is given to it, but it's also used very well, right? Mm. Like, Del Toro has got a good idea of what he wants to set up. Yes, I think so. Um, I also thought, you know, I was looking at those nightclub scenes and so on, and I, 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 I wanted better images, more striking imagery, more, you know, something more beautiful. In the 47 one. In the 47 one, mm. and more, you know, the, the compositions would be more striking. I mean, they were almost like set pieces where you think, oh, something marvelous visually is going to happen here, mm. right? The scene with the ghost, yeah, mm. with Doreen. I mean, it kind of was very flatly filmed, right? She appears in the background. I mean, it's mm. not, yeah. I mean, the film does have, you know, the image of the electricity, right? And, you know... Uh, um, Though it's not that striking, really. It's not that striking, no. Um and it's also not built up as well I and mean, this is something else that I thought it is built up with much more drama as a kind of set piece in the new version so it's about the police are there we're doing this to you know get them off the case and off the sense which is the same thing they're doing in the 47 version mm. but in the new one it's set up as oh my god stay back so like, like Bradley Cooper turns on the showman right mm. stay back we have to purge the electricity we have to do it through her and he turns it into a big show in here it's it kind of just comes and goes like they just do it it's, there's no there's no real showmanship to it. I think I kind of feel that way about a lot of things in mm. comparison. There's much more, there's much better, more um, excited dramatization of things in the new mm. version. I think there's a little bit less of it. Yes, uh, I yeah, and I do think you know the the Del Toro film brings in other dimensions. I mean, you don't see the 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 suicide, yeah. Of the people who've been conned. Yeah. No, no, right, yeah. You know, which is such a striking... No. And a yeah. funny moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so I think uh, it's, it's interesting because it feels... The 1947 version 
So let's let's just establish. I think it's, I think it's a very good film. Yeah, but it's not great, which is the reason for the remake. Yeah, and I do think actually that the remake brings out a whole other series of dimensions, both visual and thematic. You know that were missed out uh, in the nineteen forty seven version. Uh, and the only thing that I would exchange of one for the other is I wish, you know, Joan Blondell had played in the Del Toro version. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fair enough. All right. Um, so I think we nonetheless, I would recommend people see it, really. And it's a wonderful companion piece to the Del Toro version. Well, certainly. And I wouldn't recommend people don't see it, but um, I don't count it as a really, really good film. It's an interesting one and interesting in comparison. Mm. Um, and I think, and it is interesting that it has made me appreciate things in this new version that I had taken for granted or not seen very much in. Mm. Um so, interesting, right. but not great. All right, well, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>
all of the films that we've been talking about this year, some of, you know, which have been released primarily through Netflix or Apple or, what you know, wherever, you know, but I think they're as good as anything I've seen in my lifetime of watching films, right? And the conversations about them and in sometimes better or worse films. So, you know, the conversations we've had about Power of the Dog or, you know, what was the that film about the planet? <laughs> Don't Look Up. Don't Look Up or, you know, yeah, I mean, those conversations which have been national and international conversations, I, you know, so kind of cinema is still giving people ideas about, you know, what people are like, kind of what the world is like, how the world should change. Yeah, kind of what our own place in the world is like. I mean, those are all the, the kinds of conversations, you know, that kind of cinema has always incited, as well as kind of, you know, dreams of, you know, a different world, a different way of life, whatever. Mm. I mean, I think cinema is still offering very potent kind of um, evocations of all of those concerns. Yeah, that some of us see it through a television screen now or through, a, you know, a big home screen or whatever uh, is a different story. I do think there are, that's a significant change because if you're watching it at the cinema, right, the filmmakers control the narrative flow. Whereas if you're watching it at home, you control it. You can pause anytime you want and actually destroy mm. a filmmaker's creation of a flow for you, i.e. things like suspense or whatever. But nonetheless, I do think, you know, some of the, the films we've watched in the last year have given us as much to talk about Titan, my God, right, as, as, as anything in the past. So cinema might have changed, right, quite considerably, I think. Uh, but, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I think people have been talking about it as much as I can remember at any other time as well. Mm. Yeah, but, um, but the question of cinema as a night out, uh, yeah. a destination, something to go, you know, that's been in question, and that was one of the questions, like I say, with the electric sure, closing, sure. you thought, is that dead? Is it going to be multiplex from now on and nothing else, or is even that going to die? And the fact that we've got an independent cinema coming back from the grave and having such a successful opening is a wonderful thing. I mean, my view is that cinema as... Well, cinema exhibition as exhibition mm. for the masses is gone. Yeah, I do think that. I mean, I do think that what we'll have now is, uh, you know, cinema exhibition for things like Marvel films or, you know, bijouy, quite expensive exhibition sites for the middle classes who are interested in film as art. Mm. But the majority of people will be watching all of these films through a, a television screen of varying sizes. But those experiences are still going to be there. You know, it's funny how you go to the cinema and... Most of the time, it's fairly empty when we go. Mm. Now, admittedly, we're not tending to go on Friday and Saturday evenings, yes. which is when biggest it's crowds probably, will yeah. be in. Um, but, you know, there aren't that many people in a, in a theatre that seats, I don't know how many, mm. a couple of hundred maybe. Mm. Um, but it is when you get to Avengers Endgame, the new Star Wars, that kind of thing, and it is packed out. Yes. That's still an experience that's unlike any other and so satisfying yes yeah. I mean it was exciting at the electric yesterday yeah it was that was uh, cool you know to watch uh, 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 the film to watch Nightmare Alley because you know it was pretty full and actually you sit down and kind of you know the stranger next to you begins to talk to you about you know and, that guy was very talkative yeah he was almost too, too talkative <laughs> Um, Not during the film, though. But but that was exciting. You know, people were excited yeah, yeah, to be to be together. And actually, this thing about strangers being together, yeah, is also kind of significant for me. Yeah. Um, 
And it was the audience that the electric was attracting as well, you know. So with the greatest respect to the people who fill up Cineworld when the Marvel films are out, you know, they weren't quite the same crowd, right? These no. are, <clears throat> this was a crowd that was interested in the reopening of the electric. That's why we were there. Yeah. And so there's a there's a certain nicheness yeah. to the the audience, a self selected kind of nicheness that well, we saw a four o'clock show and I would say it was half to two thirds full. It was mostly full, yeah. Uh, so uh, you know, very good crowd for, for a four o'clock show. Anyway, very best wishes for them, and you know we'll certainly be be, be going. Uh, it's two blocks from my house, so I'll be I'll be going quite a bit. All the best, the electric.